2 Corinthians is the book that I've chosen to preach a series out of for the next several months. And the title of this sermon series is Indomitable Faith. If you're interested in having a faith that cannot be penetrated by the fiery darts of the evil one, if you're interested in enduring and growing in perseverance and growing your spiritual muscles so that you might fight back against persecution and attack and hardship, this is the book for you. So I want to begin by describing a little bit of background for the book of 2 Corinthians, and then we'll pray and we will spend time studying the first 11 verses of chapter 1. So by way of background, the book that we call 2 Corinthians is at least the fourth book that Paul wrote, or the fourth epistle that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. If you're unfamiliar with the nature of the New Testament, there are gospels, there is a historical book called Acts, there is an apostolic or a apocalyptic book at the end called the book of Revelation. And then in between, we have several letters, we call them epistles. And some of those letters are general letters, like the book of Hebrews, written to a collection of Christians. Others of them are individual letters like the book of Philemon written to an individual about a specific circumstance. And then some of the books are ecclesiastical letters. They're written to churches. And First and Second Corinthians in our New Testament are ecclesiastical epistles written to churches, local churches, to give direction and doctrine and pastoral leadership over them. But if you actually go to the book we call First Corinthians, in First Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle references a previous letter that he had sent to the Corinthian church. So there would have been a first letter and then the book that we know as 1 Corinthians would probably at least have been the second letter. And then we have a book in our New Testament called 2 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it references a letter that came before that. So we have at least four letters referenced in these two books and that the book we call 1 Corinthians is probably actually 2 Corinthians. The book we call 2 Corinthians is probably actually 4 Corinthians. Is anybody confused yet? Nevertheless, this illustrates that Paul and his colleagues were in the regular business of writing to and directing and you know, clarifying things for these early churches because they loved them and wanted them to grow and flourish in Christ. In terms of the content of 2 Corinthians... Part of the book is sort of a defense where Paul as an apostle is defending himself and his office and his ministry against accusations that had been made against him by the Corinthian church. And you might think, well, that's mildly self-serving. And from a human perspective, it certainly appears that way. But because Paul had a very significant office. He was an apostle. He was providing revelation and direction to the people of God. He understood that he had to guard his office because without guarding his office, major problems, doctrinal controversies, and that would go unaddressed in the early church. But more broadly, and with application to all of us, the book of 2 Corinthians is, is super helpful because it addresses the issue of suffering and affliction rather extensively. And it helps us as believers to think through how suffering and affliction build indomitable faith. How God actually uses earth's worst, as it's been said before, to accomplish heaven's best. 
And so if you are interested in developing a faith that's not easily subdued by the circumstances of life, that's impenetrable against the devil's attack, our study over the next several months in 2 Corinthians will be a blessing and a benefit to you, which is my desire and my prayer for you as your pastor. So let's pray together. And we're just gonna ask that God would comfort us and strengthen our faith um, as we get into this book and benefit from it. So Lord, here we are. And as Pastor Rob has said, we love you and we care for you. And we thank you that you love us and care for us. And we're asking Lord that your Holy Spirit would increasingly descend upon this church, that we would humbly walk underneath your sovereign rule. We declare right now, once again, that you are king. You are on the throne. We are your servants. We ask, Lord, that you would give us discernment and wisdom beyond our natural capacities to understand the nature of the world within which we live, to understand the spiritual battle that wages inside of our own souls and hearts, to understand and to see with great clarity spiritual attack when it's coming at us and to understand in a greater way the nature and the blessings and benefits of the sacrificial work of Jesus. We wanna be strengthened in our faith. We don't wanna be easily pushed around or overcome. We don't wanna fail you. And we don't wanna lose out on the blessings and rewards of relationship which are available to us through Christ. So bless this study in Christ's name, amen. Let's get right into it. Let's read chapter one, beginning with verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standardized introduction that is present in basically more or less these same words in most of the epistles of the New Testament. And they remind the church of Paul's office as an apostle, which means you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Now, Paul, of course, we know was not one of the original 12 disciples of Christ, one of which was disqualified and took his own life, the other 11 of whom became apostles. But Paul did encounter the resurrected Christ later on in life on the road to Damascus. His previous job was as a Jewish leader persecuting the church of all things. But as God often does, he picks those that are least likely and uses them to accomplish much for his purposes. So Paul's life is not only about the proclamation of the grace of God, but Paul's life is a paradigm. It's proof that God is in the business of graciously changing bad people into the image of his son. The text goes on to say that the church of God that is at Corinth. So this is the, the recipients, the immediate recipients is a church in Corinth. There's a reference here to having the letter distributed to the broader region of Achaia. There's a couple little things that I think are worth mentioning here. The first is that there's an implicit recognition that the church of God is not just localized, the church of God is globalized. So it says here, the church of God that is at Corinth. We understand from the New Testament that the church is global. 
that there are Christians in Windsor and Harrow and, and uh, Toronto and, and, and Quebec City and all around the world. The church of God is a global phenomenon. But the church of God expresses itself in local gatherings or assemblies of believers, as it does here at Harvest Bible Church. We are not the church, we're not the sum total of the church, but we are a local expression of the church under the watchful care of elder pastors. The text also gives this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some have remarked that this is sort of a universal kind of declaration. There's a Jewish influence here, shalom, peace. There's a Greek influence here, grace, bringing together this Greek-like greeting and this Hebrew-like greeting kind of reminds the church implicitly that the church is not limited to one particular uh, ethnic group. But I think there's something else theological in this statement that is helpful for us to be reminded of. And that is that as a Christian faith, we are grounded and founded in our belief in the grace of God. Where would we be if it wasn't for the grace of God? But grace provides us with something. Grace provides us with peace. When we get the first, we also gain the second. And this is a theme that we are going to be reminded of in the rest of the book, that life often seeks to steal our peace through suffering and through affliction. How many of us have not had those dark nights of the soul where we might begin to question, does God really love me? Why is God allowing me to suffer? Why did that precious relationship end in separation, divorce, death? Have I been sidelined in God's redemptive plan? Am I noticed by God? Does God really care about his church? Why does God allow his people to suffer and to be persecuted? The world forces these questions upon us in an attempt to steal our peace. But because we have grace, we also gain peace. And in order to maintain our peace, we have to continue to go back and remind ourselves of the grace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ. So these are some thoughts just from the opening introductory words of this epistle. But the big idea I would like to wrestle with you today is the question of comfort and suffering and how those all go together. And I'd like to propose to you that when you are comforted, you are also equipped to comfort others. We're going to see sort of a selfless approach to the Christian faith here rather than the approach that says, well, Jesus is just here for you as an individual, we're going to learn that when God works in your life, he also works in your life so that he might work in others' lives. He works in my life so that he might work in your life. He works in your life so that you might work in my life. So there's this sense in which suffering has an advantage, properly responded to, to the whole gathered Christian community. So we'll talk about questions like, why do we suffer and how, how do we find comfort in our suffering? And here's the first truth I'd like to introduce you to or reintroduce you to probably more accurately because many of you already know this. And it is this, that the Father's love and Christ's suffering work together to comfort us. 
It says in verses 3, 4, and 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in. Notice it doesn't say after. It's during. God has the capacity to comfort us during our affliction. That's the nature of the word in. All, that's an important word, not just some, but in all our affliction. And then here's one of the purpose statements given to us in the scriptures as to why God allows people to suffer. Is that not an age-old question? Why does a good God allow suffering? That question's been asked since the beginning of time. It's usually asked by skeptics and atheists out in the open. But behind closed doors, I think it's really asked by all of us at some point or another. And here are one of the reasons why God allows us to suffer. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ's sufferings, we share abundantly in comfort too. God is the ultimate source of suffering. This is a theme that we're going to be taught and retaught over and over again in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. It's going to come up over and over again in the first part of this book. And there's a reference here to Christ's afflictions. We, in the Lord's Supper this morning, we remembered what Christ has done for us. We participated in it. It's an act of participation. It's an intimate act to take into one's body emblems of the body and blood of Christ. There's an intimacy there. There's an identification. There's a participation that goes on there. And in this text, a similar truth is communicated to us that we don't just remember what Christ has done. We enter into his suffering and we participate in his suffering. And we remind ourselves that as we share in his suffering and in his death, we also share in his victory and in his what? His life. We go through the same kinds of things that Christ did. And we are redeemed because of them. Paul testifies to this out of his own personal experience. That in his distress, he was comforted by God. And he understands that because he was comforted by God, he now has something to offer to the people of God, an experience, an irrevocable encounter with God. He received something from his suffering, that is comfort. And he was therefore able to, through his testimony, testify to others that were currently suffering that the God that he had been comforted by can also comfort them. It's like if you have a physical ailment, and you find a physician, a chiropractor, a physiotherapist, a nutritionist that gives you great insight and fixes your problem, and then subsequently you meet a friend that has the same problem, what are you going to do? I got a business card I want to give to you. I know who you should go see. 
such and such helped me, and I know they can help you. Same idea here. Paul had been helped by God, healed by God. He'd encountered the divine physician. And he didn't want to keep that a secret. So he passes this on to the church by way of his testimony. Now, I think there are some lessons. I'm going to give you three that flow out of these introductory verses. The first is this, that out of our pain comes great ministry opportunities. Paul had experience, and he will testify further to this, great affliction. He had experienced suffering that was crippling to the point that he despaired of life itself. But in his crippled situation, he had encountered a God of all comfort. And he wanted to tell everybody else about it. So one of the greatest Christian acts, charitable acts, benevolent acts, loving acts that you can offer to another Christian is your story. Talk about your story. Pointing people to God's grace in your life. Telling people about how God in the past helped you to overcome great trial, great temptation, great suffering, feelings of abandonment. This is a huge blessing to be able to pass on to others. And it reminds us that our faith is a testimonial faith. The whole of scripture as the word of God is also a testimony to us, a written testimony of how God has remained faithful to various people groups and various individuals and various churches for millennia. And we read it with anticipation as if their story is our story. Their God is our God and we benefit and are blessed by that. And so are we when we testify to God's redemptive work in our own immediate lives. Secondly, out of great suffering, greater comfort. If you look at the text in verse 5, he uses an emphatic word. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. Now, if you're like me, I want the abundant comfort. I would prefer to avoid the abundant suffering. And in fact, in our spiritual immaturity, we can often approach God and say, God, if you don't give me abundant comfort, I will not suffer for you at all. But that's not the nature of the deal. The nature of the deal is if you want abundant comfort, the prerequisite to comfort is discomfort, named in the text as affliction or suffering. But this is a blessing to us. We understand that in our suffering, the greater the suffering we experience, the greater access we have to comfort from God. If you never suffer, you never grow up spiritually. If life is a cakewalk, a bed of roses, as they say, for you, and everything's hunky-dory, you tend to fall asleep at the faith wheel. You don't think a lot about God. I don't really need him. I mean, he's out there, glad he exists. I can intellectually affirm the existence of God, but I don't really need him because my life is awesome. 
This is a problem in the West. And too often we begin to use God's blessings as a distraction, an excuse from sacrificial living. And God often puts up with that for a generation or two. And then he reminds us how feeble and frail we are and susceptible we are. And then blessing begins to flow again as we turn back to him and find our comfort in him and him alone. Third lesson is that faith grows as we look back and recall God's comfort. Maybe you experienced a great challenge in your life 10 years ago, 40 years ago. But that challenge, having been overcome and having been comforted by God in it, has served to keep you in your spiritual saddle every day since then. Your encounter with the God of comfort was so powerful that it continues to affect and inform your faith even into the present. Faith grows as we look back as Paul did and recalled God's comfort. This reminds us that comfort has no expiry date. It never like loses its capacity to build faith. It's transferable even into the present. I've often thought about the people that have influenced my life, teachers, Sunday school teachers, parents, relatives, pastors, church people, especially in my younger years, and how they shaped my concept of God, my understanding of scripture, my thoughts about who I am and what my calling is and my strengths and my weaknesses and all that. And I could name some of those people for you, many of which are still living. But then I wonder, who influenced them? And if I knew who influenced them, and if I knew who influenced them, at some point we're like, I don't know. But what I do believe is that all the people that have blessed us and influenced us and passed on faith to us have been influenced by a historical lineage of unsung heroes whose names have been forgotten, but whose basic testimonies continue to impact our approach to God, our faith. And what's fascinating is to think that there will come a time when you will die and your children will remember who you are and your grandchildren likely will remember who you are. Your great-grandchildren probably won't and your great-great-grandchildren definitely won't. At some point, you'll be forgotten. Your name will be forgotten. Your occupation will be forgotten. Your job will be forgotten. You'll vanish from the annals of human history. But your story, your testimony, can continue to impact people's lives for countless generations, even millennia to come. This is why when we're in the word of God, we look back and we study the lives of men like Joseph. We never met Joseph but we see what he went through and what God did in his life. We study the lives of men like Daniel. We know what he went through and we, we relate to them because we're like, man, your story is my story. Christianity is a faith that passes on one story to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation reminds us of the comfort of God. Secondly, the comforts of some bless many. Verse six teaches us if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. Again, what is comfort's one prerequisite? Discomfort. Discomfort. 
Affliction and suffering are necessary precursors to comfort. And as we speak about God's comfort in our lives, again, we serve as models for the next generation, for those that look to us for leadership, our children, our churches, those we disciple. And they then serve the generation that comes after them, who in turn serves the generation that comes after them. At the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, before it really took off, there were groups of what you could call like proto-reformers, proto-Protestants, pre-Protestants, that were really beginning to think through issues of authority. And one group, the Lollards, as they were called, under the influence of John Wycliffe, were pretty tenacious in their faith. And they were considered radicals because at that time, under the Roman church, your basic sources of authority were in the form of papal pronouncements, what the Pope had to say, in the form of church traditions. What, do we, what did we used to do in the past? That's what we should be doing in the present. And the various ecclesiastical structures that ruled the church. And while the word of God was considered the Holy Bible, it wasn't for all intents and purposes where you would go to if you were looking for clarity on matters of faith or practice. But the Lollards were sort of some of the first believers to say, no, we, we believe in the authority of scripture. Like what does the Bible actually have to say about matters of faith and practice? Well, you can understand that that wasn't well accepted. And so in Fox's book of martyrs, which was written in 1563, there is a record of some of the persecutions of the Lollard believers and one of the choice ways of silencing the Lollards was to take them out and tie them to a stake at a place called the Lollards Pit. And they would arrange the firewood and they would add accelerant to the wood and they would light these believers on fire. Now, I've said to you before, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of the method. I hope it's you know, in my sleep or something like that. But you think about various ways of dying and you might think, okay, a bullet in the head, you're gone like that. Or you, know, you die in your sleep, there's no pain. But can you imagine the pain and anguish, even the psychological pain being led to the stake, being tied up, knowing what's gonna happen, the pressure to renounce your faith, the accelerant being added, the fire being lit, beginning to lick up your legs and engulf you. Can you imagine the carnal temptation to say, I renounce my faith. It would be incredibly and unbelievably powerful. And apart from grace, frankly, I don't think you could do it. But these believers with the grace of God literally were burned alive, many of them, because they pointed back to the authority of the word of God. Now, by the way, martyrs by definition are always the minority. Martyrs are never the majority. Martyrs are always... The minority, the, the whack jobs, the weirdos, the, you know, the, 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 the naive, the ignorant, the, the people that are disturbing societal order. They were always pushed aside. Now, when we hear stories like that, there is a sense in which just hearing them causes us to assess our faith and galvanizes ourselves 
in our faith. Is that not true? We tell stories about the Lollards. The reason why Fox's Book of Martyrs is so well-read, is known even into the present, is because the church has a generational testimony. The past informs the present. We read about the great men and women of Scripture because in reading them, we're like, that sounds like my story. I mean, the circumstances are different. They lived in a different country. They, They had strange names compared to ours. But I feel like I'm Daniel in the lion's den at times. I feel like I'm Joseph being sold into slavery at times. I feel like I'm Paul being flogged for my faith at times. We enter into it. And it is their endurance that blesses us. And likewise, church, it is your endurance that blesses the next generation. What will you be remembered for? Maybe nothing except for your faith. So often we pour our lives into building reputations that are just temporal. You know, we want that flashy job, that that flashy position in society, the, the recognition of men. But nobody gives a rip after you're gone. But the testimony that continues to bear fruit is the testimony of the Christian that has endured much suffering and come through to the honor and glory of God. People don't need to remember you to be influenced by you. Which, by the way, I think is a statement of great freedom. It it frees us from the encumbrances of thinking that a higher salary or a more prestigious occupation or graduating from some Ivy League school is what is going to give us recognition. It's freeing. (laughs) And I think that we need some more of that in our society, more freedom to live for the things that actually matter. Third, past suffering galvanizes us for future suffering. Not only does it bless us in the moment and bless those around us, but it galvanizes us for future suffering. Look at verse seven and following. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. Now just look up here for a moment. And let me just say, before you read what comes next in the text, ask yourself, how how honest is the Bible in depicting the human condition? How honest is the Bible? Is the Bible really useful or just some several stories and teachings of highfalutin, not usable, not real, doesn't sound like my life kind of drivel? No. Here's the Apostle Paul. But listen to how he describes, and tell me if you haven't been through this on an occasion or two. Listen to how he describes his response to life's challenges. He says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You ever been there? Like, I really, I really would rather not wake up tomorrow. I'm not sure it's worth it. I have 
nothing left to give. Paul is just so raw, so real, so vulnerable. And I think that's why there's such blessing in scripture because this is like, this is my testimony too. This is your testimony too. We've all had those dark nights of the soul where we've despaired of life itself. And the honesty here beyond our strength is so telling of the problem in many of our lives, which is we are trying to deal with life's issues with our own strength rather than the comfort that God alone can provide. He goes on to say, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us and and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul had a story to tell. He had a story of having been cast to the beasts in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, of having received lashings in 11, 24, of people rioting in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41 as a result of his ministry, of persecution in Acts 20, 19, and of this undescribed affliction here. We don't know specifically what it was, but we know it was so bad, he kind of wanted to like just end life. Why does God allow suffering? It's a good question. There's no one answer. The Bible presents us with some hints and sometimes some specific reasons. Sometimes all we get is to the praise of his glory and grace. Somehow God's getting glory out of it. Sometimes it's, well, it's to to punish you because you've sinned and continue to rebel against him. Here, The reason is that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You know how we have this very humanistic message that floats around in our world and it comes to us through various words, but the the message is essentially the same. And that is you can do whatever you want. Don't worry, be happy. You need to smile a little more. You know, if we write peace signs on the wall and graffiti, the world's going to be a better place. All of these like hopeful yet naive and ignorant folks running around thinking that if we can just rally the troops and get everybody to get along and fly the right flag or elect the right person or hashtag it to death, that somehow there's going to be peace on earth and all of our problems are going to be solved. Now, for thousands of years, according to evolutionists, for millions of years, humanity has been trying this and has crashed and burned generation after generation. Every person on the planet today wasn't here in the 1800s. Everybody who's alive on the planet today was born in the 1900s or in the 2000s. And you think, this is our time. We can figure it out. But we haven't figured it out. And no generation before us has figured it out. The problem with humanity is not, you need to think higher thoughts about yourself. The problem with humanity is self-reliance to the exclusion of God. Nations never survive more than a few generations when they deny God. 
Families never stay intact and flourish when they deny God. Economics always fall apart. Economic systems always fall apart when you deny God. Self-reliance is an insufficient tool to overcome the afflictions and sufferings of life. Hope arises from hopelessness, however, but not hopelessness in God, hopelessness in yourself. Hope rises from hopelessness, but only if you look to the eternal one, the giver of hope, and you recognize from whom you came and from whom you, will, you eventually will go to and trust in him in the moment. Now, this does not mean that as Christians, we should go out and like throw ourselves in front of the bus of affliction. It doesn't mean that we should love to suffer. It doesn't mean that we should go and look for opportunities to be opposed. I mean, we're not sadists. In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus is warning the early Christians of suffering that they will experience, he describes it in very chilling language. You know, you're going to be turned over. Brother's going to turn against brother. Your family's going to turn against you. You're going to suffer for my sake. And you might think that Jesus would end all that by saying, so just sort of smile and enjoy. (laughs) Doesn't say that. In chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 23, he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Sometimes you're like, enough's enough. I'm out of here. You know, many of our ancestors, depending on your ethnic background, came to North America specifically because of religious persecution. They thought about it. They realized to themselves, you know what? We're adults. We might be able to endure this. We're willing to give up our lives for Christ, but we have to consider our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, frankly, in this culture for all intents and purposes, all is lost. So they got on boats and they moved. This is the story of human history where people of faith have had to sometimes stay and die and other times they've had to pull up at great cost to themselves and they've had to move. They've had to flee from one town to the next, so to speak. Sometimes God calls us to stick around and endure and other times to move away from that person that's persecuting you, to quit that job within which you're constantly being spoken down to, to change your occupation, to sever a relationship that is nothing but poisonous, to leave a country that has turned itself over to rampant secularism. But whether we flee or stay, what we must commit ourselves to doing is finding comfort in Christ. You know why? Because no matter where you go, there always will be some opposition and persecution and discomfort in a broken world. Maybe a lot in some places and a little less in other relationships, but there always will be some. And so this message really is transcultural. It transcends all of time here on earth. The fourth teaching is to commit ourselves to prayer. Prayer for one another helps overcome affliction. In verse 11, the apostle says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Notice that divine blessing is often tied 
directly to prayer. You also must help us by prayer, he says, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing. Divine blessing is directly tied to prayer. This is a point of Christian teaching that sometimes can be confusing because we wrestle with, well, how is it that the believer works cooperatively with God? I mean, aren't we supposed to just sort of totally and absolutely rely upon God to do everything and essentially do nothing? Well, it's true that certain gifts from God are one-dimensional. They're monergistic. Salvation in the form of justification comes upon us by the grace of God through his electing sovereign purposes. You don't wake up one morning and just say, you know what, I'm done with sin. I'm going to go hang out with God. The human bent is to run from God, to despise God. Romans 3.10 says, no one seeks God. So much for the seeker-sensitive movement. Nobody really seeks after God. But God, of course, does work in people's hearts so that on a human perspective, it certainly appears as though they are seeking after him. But when you're saved, you realize, man, that was God doing all that he does behind the scenes to lead me unto himself. Once we are justified, God begins the sanctification process. And the sanctification process is a cooperative process, a synergistic process, where our spiritual growth isn't just dependent upon the grace of God. Our spiritual growth is also largely tied to our obedience or lack of obedience as well-equipped Christians. And there's no excuse not to be well-equipped with the church of God around us, the spirit of God within us, the word of God before us. And here we're reminded that prayer is a cooperative thing. We can be reminded of what the writer James says in James 4.12, you do not have because you do not ask. Maybe you don't have because you don't ask God in prayer. God asks us to ask him for things. In prayer, we then cooperate with God as a body for the benefit of the all. What if we don't pray? Well, sometimes God works in spite of us. But more often than not, God doesn't answer the prayers of his people if they don't pray. If we don't exercise dependence upon him, which is essentially what prayer is. If we don't cry out to him. So if we are going to endure, we can't just say, God, do your thing and I'm going to do my thing. We have to exercise dependence upon God and call upon God to galvanize us and call upon God to give us comfort and call upon God to give us indomitable faith so that we might not fail, we may not falter. And notice that this is not just an individual prayer, but it's a corporate prayer. Pray for us all. Want to be praying for God's people. Are you praying for your church? I was talking to a dear brother yesterday who's recently identified with our church and he's just talking about how he's spiritually flying. I mean, he's been so blessed by you, by our ministry here at the church. And he was telling me in all honesty, to my shame, he said, there was a time I never prayed for my church. I never prayed for my leaders. I just did whatever. But now he's been convicted. He's praying for his leaders. He's praying for his church. He's praying daily with his wife. And he's talking about how this is just a massive shift in the way he thinks and a huge blessing to him. He's obeying passages like this. Are you praying for your church? Are you praying for your leaders? Are you praying for strength? One of the last century's greatest Christian philosophers and 
literary scholars was C.S. Lewis. And I want to end by just sharing an insight that he shared in one of his books, which I think is helpful pertaining to suffering and how God uses suffering to work in our, our midst. He writes, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. You know, in order to take a block of stone from a block of stone to a beautiful sculpture requires violence being done to the stone. And in the same way, God uses suffering to shape us into the image of his son. When we suffer, we mustn't interpret our suffering as the abandonment of God, but precisely as the presence of God at work in our lives, positioning us for the blessings of God, which he so desperately wants to give to his people. So be blessed by these words, church. 